The last few weeks, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, and we're trying to to get a better understanding of, of what he's pointing at. Because what Jesus does in the parables is he uses the power of these stories to point us back to truth. All of us approach the scripture, and actually we approach God with a set of blinders. We have our own preconceived ideas of what God is like, of what things should be, what is right and what is wrong, and we need to have that be corrected by the true authority and source, which is God's word itself. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And in this story, he's pointing at something, a message that is incredibly important to him. In fact, when you look through the Gospels, you'll see that banquets and feasts, and specifically wedding feasts, come up a lot. Jesus does a lot of ministry at meals, but he also uses that picture, that story, to show us the message of the Gospel. And here we'll find in this case, there's, as often there is with Jesus' teaching, is there is both a substance that Jesus is saying, you need to do this, Here's some instruction I want to give you, but there is also a symbol where he's saying, I not only want you to do this, and I'm commanding you to do this, but I want you to see how this points to something deeper, more significant, more meaningful. And that's what he's doing here in this incredible, incredible story. The banquet is really important because it's, pointing towards a theme that runs all the way through the scripture, a theme that we will celebrate today in communion or Lord's Supper. Because the banquet points back to the Passover or Pesach, where God himself delivered his people. It points then to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he was the Passover lamb who gave himself for us. And it points to our remembrance that we continue to partake of the bread and of the cup, remembering what he has done. And it looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to a celebration where God's plan of rescuing us is put on vivid display. It is a moment in time that God is anxious for us to experience, eager for us to experience. That would be a better word. I don't think God gets anxious, but eager for us to experience. And, and, and so he's pointing those who are there at this dinner back to some important truths. So let's take a look at it. First, he gives us some practical substance, some things that we need to do. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, he's there at a banquet with a great n- a number of influential people, um, many of the scribes and Pharisees who were religious leaders of his day would have, would have been there in attendance. They were special guests. And, and Jesus, as often would have happened in that culture, as a traveling rabbi, would have been invited so that they could find out more about his teaching. And, um, and people would be gathered around the outside of the house because this is the in- entertainment that's happening in this community. It's, it's the place to be. And so it's in that setting, Jesus is speaking to his host and the others who are there, and he says, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, he's saying, what I want you to give is to give in a way that represents the grace of God, the goodness of God. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that he mentions, Jesus mentions the resurrection. And it's not just an accident. He's not just saying there's a reward coming. He's setting the stage for the backstory of his parable. Because when we look at it in in the book of Isaiah, we're going to see where um, Jesus is ultimately pointing to. It is a story that has to do with the resurrection, what we're going to celebrate next Sunday together. Well, here in this, Jesus is trying to point us back to the very heart of God. A God who is willing to give to those who cannot pay him back in any way. He's pointing to the message of the gospel, the good news. And if we are to truly be followers of Jesus Christ, we must give grace to others as Jesus has given grace to us. And so the substance of his command is this. We're to practice at radical hospitality. We are to be intentional about giving grace to others as God has given grace to him. We are to embrace the stranger, the hurting, the refugee, the person that's outcast that um, doesn't have resources of their own. And, And he's not just giving us a suggestion. He's saying, this is what I want you to do because you represent me. If we claim to be a follower of his, We have to take his words seriously and live them out. That's why as a church, one of our values, we we have several values that we try to to live and keep pointing ourselves back to. One is to love God with all that we are because that's what we're commanded to do, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And then in loving others, which is how we demonstrate our love for God, we're to give grace to them. And, And so we have a little acronym here that, Um, I haven't pointed this to you in a while, so I I thought it was a good time to revisit it. Giving grace means this, G-R-A-C-E. We're to have God's view of other people. If you remember, if you were here a few years ago when we looked at the series on the masterpiece, we're to look for God's masterpiece that he's restoring in the lives of others around us. We're to see them and ask God to help us to see them with his eyes. God's view, that's the G. Then the R is we're to practice radical hospitality. We're to serve them as Jesus has served us. We're to be intentional about connecting with people, sharing meals with them, getting to know them on a one-to-one basis. The A is active listening. We're not just to tell them what we believe, but we're to engage in their story and see what God is doing in their heart and in their life. And then we're to to put our love into practice and care practically. We're to find a need and seek to meet it. And then the E is that when we do these things, we should expect God to be working. He is a God who takes our obedience and by the power of his Holy Spirit uses it to point people to himself and to bring honor and glory to his name. It's not a small thing. It may seem like a little thing when you're helping a person, maybe a homeless person that you meet on the street. It is not a small thing when we expect God to be at work in the midst of it. I was thinking of just some 
some things where, where God was trying to convict my own heart of, of, you know, like, Drew, I'm an introvert. I know it seems so strange for a preacher, but I'm about as introverted as you can get. And, and so it's, I have to push myself um, to, to connect and make, make relationships. And God's prompting me to do that because that's what he commands us to do. And so I was thinking, Lord, how do you want me to be more practical in showing the kind of radical hospitality to others that you've shown to me? And one of the things I was thinking is there's, you know, we have so many buskers here in our city, um, street musicians that have all kinds of talent and ability. Uh, some of them are really, really good. Some of them are just looking for some coin because they're hungry or they're thirsty, more likely often the case. But, but they have a heart of music. How would it be different in, of instead of just passing by and sometimes giving them a coin or sometimes buying them something to eat, what if I stopped and invited one of them and took them to a concert and showed them the love and the grace of, that God has shown to me? You see, it doesn't have to be that creative, but something like that could be incredibly significant. You have to follow up with me and to see when God prompts me to do that because I know it's coming and he's not gonna let me get away with not doing it. Or, or this one, I, I talked with a, with a precious little lady um, in our building yesterday and maybe you have something similar. Is there a senior citizen in your building that you could just make it a point and, and get, to go with them, get together with them and say, how can I bring you what's heavy from the grocery store? Chances are they don't use the internet so they can't have their... Del- their groceries delivered by Tesco, um, but they can have their groceries delivered by you, okay? Uh, You can all do it, I promise. Opening our homes to people who are traveling through, practice radical hospitality. Invite people to share meals with you. Open up your life to people that you don't know. Take an initiative. Connect with a stranger. Don't wait for someone else to invite you. That's what he's telling us to do, is to be like him. Now let's look at the parable because that was, that was a substantive command that Jesus gave to actually correct some false teaching that was happening in his day. And we'll find out more about that as we go along. But let's look at the, at the, the setting of the parable itself. Verse 15. After he tells them this, after he says, I want you to practice radical hospitality, then this happens. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this guy gives a very good um, religious or church answer. He hits the nail right on the head in what he's saying. It's absolutely true. But my guess is his heart really wasn't connected to it because Jesus then goes on to give a corrective parable where he's saying, yes, that is true, and here's what it looks like. It's true that there's gonna be a great blessing, an incredible banquet that is coming, that God is extending an invitation to you and I to be a part of, and he wants us to be engaged in inviting others to it, and it will be incredible. Jesus' parable, though, speaks to the heart behind the words. A life that is lived in a loving and obedient relationship with God will show grace towards others. And this conversation about the banquet 
is actually part of a 700-year-long conversation that we see in the Scriptures. Jesus is talking about the good news, the message of God being the one who rescues us with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of justice. But that message got distorted and misunderstood. Many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day acted like they wanted God's message, but in fact, they did not. What a tragedy. Because oftentimes, the hardest people to reach are those who would say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, who bow towards God's word, but are unwilling to obey it and come to the feast of his grace. Every one of us is in danger of being like the self-righteous religious leaders of that day. We judge others and look at things not with God's viewpoint, but with our own values. So Jesus goes on and gives this parable. Verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, when Jesus is talking about this, he's pointing back to a passage of scripture in the book of Isaiah chapter 25. He's pointing back to a banquet that is listed there in the scripture that is very, very important. But in Jesus' day, the teaching about this banquet had taken on some different meanings. And and we're going to look at a a couple of groups, and I'm a little nerdy, and I really like history, so you're just going to have to bear with me if you're not a history buff. Um, Just hang in there, and I won't take too long, but I think you'll see what he's doing, what he's trying to do. In Jesus' day, there was um, a group of writings a group, excuse me, a religious group called the Essenes who were very conservative. Um, They lived a a monastic life where they would separate themselves out and um, they were very diligent in copying the scriptures. And we are deeply indebted to their work. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in Israel and Qumran um, were the work of the Essenes. And it's incredibly, incredibly important because in that we have affirmation of the accuracy of God's word. And one of the most beautiful finds that they they found was a complete um, scroll of the book of Isaiah. It was was amazing, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so the Essenes were doing that, but the Essenes, much like people today, they had their own viewpoint on what God was gonna do and how he was going to act. And, and they had some rules. In fact, they had a writing of their own that wasn't the scripture. It was their own rule, writing. Um, they had several of them, but one of them was called the Messianic rule. Messianic means the Savior, the Rescuer, okay, um, the Messiah. And they had an understanding of what the banquet of the Messiah was going to be. And that people would be seated by their clans and by, by a section of authority based upon what they had done. And the people that would not be invited were the lame, the blind, the poor. And so this was a teaching, even though in many ways they got a lot of things right, they missed this one. In fact, let me, let me read to you a little bit from the Messianic rule. 
And then the Messiah of Israel shall come, and the chiefs of the clans of Israel shall sit before him, each in the order of his dignity. Now, early in this passage, Jesus contradicts that and says, when you go to a banquet, don't take the, the, the highest seats. Take the lowest one. Take the place of least respect and allow your host to lift you up. But here they're saying the same thing, that they'll, they'll sit in order of their dignity, according to their place, in their camps, and in their marches. That earlier in the same scroll, the text affirms that no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in the flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or any blemish. They had reinterpreted God's word to fit their own practice. Can I tell you that is one of the most dangerous things that any of us can do? And if we're honest, chances are, we're all guilty. We're guilty of reading into God's word what we want rather than seeing what it says. And so Jesus is beginning to correct that. But there's an even greater correction that he's making. Because there, uh, in Jesus' day, the common language was Aramaic. Um, they would read the scriptures when they went to, to the synagogue or to the, to the temple. They would read them in Hebrew, but then they would discuss them in Aramaic because it was the common language of the people. And many of the, of the common people did not even speak Hebrew. They only spoke Aramaic, and that's what they understood. And so there is a, um, a paraphrase of the scripture called the Targum that's written in Aramaic that was often being used to teach people what God said. And I want to read to you what, um, before we read the actual passage in Isaiah, I want to read to you what was paraphrased by the Targum. So here's what it says. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples in this mountain a meal. And although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But this was, this was the understanding of, of, again, where they took God's word and they put on it their own understanding. Because you see, they saw themselves as separated and, and that their life connection with God was through that separation. Um, and they had forgotten that God gave them a mission that through them, he wanted to touch all nations. Well, let's look what the scripture really said because this is what Jesus is, is pointing them back to. They had gotten a misunderstanding that was being teaching, taught. But let's look what the scripture actually says. Isaiah 25, verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of full food, uh, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Do you see anything about a plague in there or a curse? No. What he's saying is, this is what I'm doing, is I'm inviting all peoples to my banquet. I want you to be a part. What he's saying and what Jesus is correcting is he's saying, look, God is so incredible and gracious is he wants all people to come to his table and to have a seat, to be a part of what he is doing. And, and, and again, this is, this is the symbol where the banquet represents what God has done for us in rescuing us through Jesus Christ. 
He's sending out an invitation to you and I to say, will you come to my banquet? Will you receive what I have done? Will you enjoy my blessings? Will you trust me? It's an offer to all nations. This is the backstory that Jesus is trying to point them back to. God is offering a satisfying life to all peoples who respond to his banquet invitation. Not just good things, but the very, very best. That's the emphasis he's trying to say when he's talking about well-aged wine. The greatest winery in all the universe is God's. He is the vine dresser. He knows how to make it perfect. But that's not all it says. Let's look at verse 7. What happens at this banquet? And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. His promise is that through this picture, that's what it's representing, this good news, is he's going to remove the veil that covers over humanity, which is the veil of sin. It's like a death shroud that's over us, that keeps us separated from God. In essence, what he's saying is just as in the Holy of Holies, there was a veil that separated a holy, perfect God from sinful humanity, he's saying that through this banquet, through this work that I'm doing, what I'm inviting you to, I'm going to take down that veil and invite you in, which is exactly what happened when Jesus Christ said, it is finished on the cross. The veil was rent from top to bottom, opening up a way for sinful men and women like you and I. I to come into the presence of a holy God and to be accepted, not because we deserve it, but because he has rescued us. And then he goes on. I love verse eight. He will swallow up death forever. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, some of you are really good church people and you're like, you've been to church since you were this high. Does swallow up death sound like it comes from someplace else in the Bible to you? Or is it only me? Okay. I know you only hear this message every Easter Sunday, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 asks this incredible question about death. Where is your sting, which comes out of Hosea? But then it, it, it says right before that death is swallowed up in victory, which is a quotation of this passage right here in Isaiah 25. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that he conquered death for all time. And he is offering us not only a place at the table, but eternal life. He's offering to take away the veil of sin that had burdened us, that kept us separated from God, and he is offering us eternal life. You see, all this was part of the symbol of the banquet. It's not just sitting down and who's invited and who's not. It's a message that's much deeper than that. God promises to swallow up death forever. And the Lord, he goes on to say, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the approach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And whenever you see that in the scripture, it's saying God guarantees it. He's putting his name on it. He's saying this is a promise you can trust because I'm staking my reputation on it. It's incredibly important to him. He promises to wipe away all of our tears. And the reproach 
the guilt, the shame of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. The shame that separates us from God, no matter who we are, no matter what our background, he promises through Jesus Christ when we place our trust in him to take it all away and give us a seat at his table to enjoy his presence. Well, finally, he goes on and says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We are to celebrate what God has done. We are to be excited about what God has done for us. That's the backstory behind when Jesus is talking about this parable of a banquet. It's much more than a meal. It is the good news of what God has done for us. And so when he talks about those who are invited that choose to then not come, they're rejecting his offer of salvation. In Jesus' day, we discover that what happened here is that many are invited, but then they refuse to come. The practice in the Middle East during that day, it's a practice that's not dissimilar to what we have today. You would have an invitation that would go out that would be a formal invitation saying, this is coming um, at approximately this day or this time, and you would send out a formal invitation, and the people would respond. They would RSVP to the banquet. But then when it was actually ready, that would tell them how much food to prepare, how many lambs to to be offered in the sacrifice or cattle, whatever the, the main course of the meal was. They would begin those preparations. And when it was time for the banquet to begin, then a servant would go and personally um, and tell those who had been invited, it's ready. And so what we have here, when Jesus is talking about these who begin to make excuses, they'd already said yes to the formal invitation. But they're saying no to the personal one. And it's a picture of of what happened. You see, in this case, the religious leaders had said yes to the law. They'd said yes to the Torah. They said yes to what God had revealed to them, and they said yes to religion. But when the invitation of a personal relationship through faith in God's Son came to them, they made an excuse. They weren't willing to humble themselves and say, God, I want to trust your provision, your offer your invitation. The first invitation came in the law and the prophets and the writings and they at least with their mouths had said yes. But when the second invitation came from the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the invitation of God's grace, they refused. Too often, we do the same thing. We will say yes to religion if it can make us look good. If there are things I can do that make me, at least in my own opinion, feel better about myself, and therefore I think I look better in God's eyes. But God's invitation is not for us to earn anything. 
but to humble ourselves before what he has done. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Has anybody ever bought any land without looking at it first? Anybody? Obviously, that he'd already been there. He'd seen it. This, I like the, the next one even better. Please have, please have me excused, he says. Another one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. This is what that means. In order, most of you probably don't come from farm country. I, I do, and so even though we had tractors, um, I still understand the principle of how a yoke of oxen work. They have to be matched and paired so that they pull together. You're never going to buy oxen without checking them out to see if they have a similar stride, a similar size, a similar um, a cooperation where they'll work together. Otherwise, they're going to be less than worthless. So again, it's not an excuse. And then the last one, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. It's like, I've just met her. Surprise. I think he already knew who she was. I'm pretty sure. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry. The master of the house is God. When we make excuses because we're too busy, the things that we think are important are more important than you, God, we risk his anger. He has graciously given you and I an invitation. But if we are preoccupied with comfort and materialism, where we choose the temporary over Christ, we will miss the blessings, the gift that he has, and we will face the consequences of rejecting him. If we choose our own success over Christ, We suffer the same thing. The first two excuses had to do with material possessions and the third with the affections of a heart. Possessions and affections cover virtually every reason by which men and women give their regrets to God and saying, no, I have another plan, another agenda. I don't really want what you have. So then it goes on in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways, to the hedges and compel, entreat, encourage people to come in that my house may be filled This is the message of the gospel. It's the message of the Great Commission. Because you see, in this case, he's given this command, and yet we don't see the results yet. He simply sent the servants out to do it. And it's a picture that Jesus is pointing to um, of saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. It's the Great Commission. That we have been called to go and share the message that our God has conquered death and he has invited you to eternal life, to a banquet in his presence. Well, we can be joint heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. He's compelling us to engage in a life that is missional, that makes a difference 
that helps people see who Jesus Christ is and find life and hope in him. That's what he calls us to do, to be this kind of people, to go out and seek to bring people to him. So here's where we are today. The ultimate message of the banquet is this. God who knows you better than anyone else, who knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you will ever do, has graciously said, I want you to be mine. I want to give you a place at my table. What I'm asking you to do is to receive what I have provided. I'm asking you to receive the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He was perfectly sinless. That's why we serve unleavened bread because sin um, is represented as leaven, as yeast, because it permeates everything. But unleavened bread represents sinlessness. He offered his sinless life for you and for me because we could never pay the price. He also willingly poured out his life, his blood, which is represented in the cup that's poured out for our forgiveness. And he said, will you drink of this? Will you receive my forgiveness? Will you place all your trust in what I have done and not in yourself? If you do, you are welcomed to my banquet. You are welcomed to be a part of my family. It's an invitation for us to come and receive life. It is also a reminder for you and I that our purpose right here, right now, is to share with others who Jesus Christ is so that they can come and that God's house may be full. So how will you respond to his banquet invitation? If you can't remember a time when you trusted Christ, examine your heart and see are you making an excuse? Is there some reason that your pride is keeping you from trusting Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, okay, I give up. I lay it down. I want to receive what you've done. I want to trust what you did on the cross for me. His invitation for you today is to come to him and simply call upon his name. The scripture says, anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved Call upon his name, Jesus, salvation. His name means God is our salvation. That's literally what Yeshua means. Call on him today. For the rest of him, let's make sure that our lives are accurately representing his invitation and let's make sure that we are engaging in a life that helps point people to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what this parable of the banquet is all about, the gospel. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would take the inadequacies of communication and that your Holy Spirit would speak truth into our hearts. Lord, that you would reveal to each of us areas where we're 
projecting our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own beliefs, our own practices on what you've commanded. And Lord, that we would, we would turn from that and we would trust in you. And Lord, for those that are here that do not yet know you, Lord, today, would, they, would you enable them to see your grace and your goodness? Speak to them, Holy Spirit. Draw their heart to you. Father, we come at this point now to, to the table. And we do so in remembrance that Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us so that we could be covered under his blood. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus covered over the household, we must be covered under his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. He willingly gave his body for us. He willingly poured out his blood to cover over our sins and give us forgiveness and clothe us in his righteousness. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive the bread and the cup in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And Lord, as we receive it, challenge our hearts to be engaged in inviting others to his banquet. Hello, would you do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed at the Passover celebration before the actual day of, during the day of preparation, before the actual day of Passover, Jesus was at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for giving yourself for us. Lord, today we receive this bread as a representation of your gift, of your provision. You are the living bread that came down out of heaven that give us sustenance and life and salvation and hope. We partake of it in remembrance of you. The scripture says also that after supper, he took the cup, the cup of redemption, And he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from it all of you for this cup is the cup of the new covenant. It is the cup of my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. Lord Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for this cup. We ask that you would bless it. We ask that you would bless the bread and that Lord, we would receive it in acknowledgement of your love and your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite our servers to come and we're gonna ha- celebrate the Lord's Supper. I invite you to come and while you're coming, if there's, if there's a need in your heart, if you have a question I can help you with, I'll be down front, just come down and, and talk with me. Um, but we invite you to come and to receive of the bread and of the cup in honor of Jesus Christ.